I'm Margaret Feinberg, and this is The Joycast. Over the last few episodes, I've been sharing about a spiritual journey that I've been on. It began in a dark season when I was so discouraged and beaten down. I remember around that time, my friend Chris said, I don't know when or where it happened, but somewhere along the way, you've made agreements with the universe that are not true. At first, I recoiled. I thought, agreements with the universe? That sounds so woo-woo. But as I thought about my thought life, I realized that I hadn't been making agreements with the universe as much as I'd been making agreements with the enemy. I had been believing lies that my best days were behind me, things weren't going to get better, that it was only a matter of time until the other shoe dropped. I remember coming home and saying, Holy Spirit, help me see the lies that I have been believing. With hot, steamy tears running down my cheek, I began writing down each one. And this journey became the basis for the book, More Power to You. Break free from fear and take your life back. You see, I began exposing the lies that not just I believe, but I think so many of us believe. Lies like, I'd only be happy if, or I'm not enough, or I'm too much, or this is just how it is, or I'll never get through this. And so through these 52 devotionals, I uncover and expose the lies that we're tempted to believe that become so popular in our culture and confront them with the truth of who we are and all we're called to be. But it's more than just a devotional because what I do is I challenge each of us to begin spending 90 seconds a day saying these daily declarations out loud that are deeply rooted in scripture and combat the very lies that we've been tempted to believe. And so these daily declarations, they are powerful. Friends, they I've shared have been carrying me through this season. I have them all over my house, in my Bible, bathroom mirror, even above the toilet paper roll. And my husband Leif is saying them too. And what we're hearing is this isn't just working for us or our friends. We are getting so many emails from people like you, like Donna, who said, man, this is a fantastic book, chock full of truth. Thanks for offering this to the world. I'm getting two more copies for Christmas gifts. Or Tracy, who said, I love this book. And my favorite is those 90-second daily challenge. You see, I have to put a reminder on my phone. And now, because of that reminder, I am reading them daily. What a difference it's making. So if you have not already, go ahead, jump online to your favorite retailer, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Christian Book, and order a copy for you and a friend. And then if you have or you are going to, go ahead and go to morepowertoyoubook.com and claim your free gifts, including a fabulous book club kit, free coloring pages, a gorgeous printable of the declarations, and much more. Well, in today's episode, we're going to explore two of the lies that I cover in More Power to You. And I think they're lies that we all wrestle with. And I think these lies have become more prominent in this season, perhaps than ever before. And that's, there's no way out. And this won't end well. Whether you're reading news headlines, you're struggling through the aftermath of the election, 
whatever you're facing, it's easy to believe these lies. I mean, what do you do when you're caught between an immovable rock and an impossible place? Maybe it's that unpronounceable diagnosis, the prodigal child, the battle with unemployment and the benefits running out, the impending financial collapse, the stress of caring for aging parents as well as your own children, the stress of bouncing between online learning and in-class learning and the uncertainty of what will come next week. Sometimes it's tempting to believe that there is no way out and there's no way this is going to end well. That's what the accuser wants us to come into agreement with. He wants us to start looking for facts that will confirm this belief until we begin reordering our lives as if the awful future we project is inevitable. You see, one of the greatest lies we can believe is that we're stuck that there's no way forward, that there's no hope, that there's no future. And someone who has wrestled with these kinds of lies is my friend, Lisa Turkust. She has walked through a very painful betrayal of her husband. And in her new book, Forgiving What You Can't Forget, Discover How to Move On, Make Peace with Painful Memories, and Create a Life That's Beautiful Again, she shares her journey and helps us discover how we can learn to trust God again, even in the hardest of situations. She also gives us a blueprint on what it looks like to let go of the lie that what someone else has done is completely unforgivable. So pull up a chair to this incredibly timely and powerful conversation. Lisa, it is such a joy and delight to have you on the Joycast. Well, thank you. I consider it such an honor. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So we have been looking at this fall at some of the lies that um, each of us struggle to believe and trying to break free from them. And I think one of the ones that I know that I've struggled with, I think a lot of people are struggling with in this season, is this idea that you know, how this is how it is. This is how it's always going to be. This concept that, you know, things are not going to get better and there's no way out. And for some of our listeners who may not know a little bit about your story, I know you've wrestled with these lies in in some of the darker seasons in life. Would you be willing to share a little bit of that story with us? Absolutely. So I think the greatest pain that a human can suffer is not just going through something hard, but it's when we feel like the hard stuff will never end and that the pain is pointless. And when that starts to happen, I think we can get completely disillusioned and start to let go of a hope that maybe we've tethered our lives to that, you know, that there's always a purpose in our pain and, and that, you know, the suffering will last for a night, but joy will come in the morning. But it's like when you keep waking up in the morning, And the hard season lasts so long. And then even longer than that, we can start to really feel like we're slipping. And I understand that because the hard season I walked through um, is, is really one that I would love to say it's like over, you know, like it's four years and, and we're done and happy and moving on. But the reality is when you've walked through something like I have, 
the healing process takes so long that there's still suffering that's tied into some of the healing that you walk through, even if the the hardship, what was causing the hardship has ended. So my story is um, that I've been married a really long time, um, over two and a half decades. We have five kids that we uh, grew to be these beautiful, wonderful, thriving adults. And um, when my baby girl packed up her things to move out and really start her adult life, um, then it was also during a season where my husband, I discovered he was being unfaithful. And so he also packed up his things and left. And I went from having this very full, loud, crazy, beautiful life to suddenly waking up one day and everything was more quiet than I'd ever known my, in my entire adult life. And it was so unexpected because we had planned for this season of um, the kids growing up and we had our kids early. And so we had all kinds of amazing things that we were going to do in this new empty nest season. But all of those things came crashing down. And I think I was grieving not only what was happening in my marriage and the implosion of that relationship, but I was also grieving that life didn't look anything like I expected it to in this season. And so it was a very, very unexpected, but also extremely excruciatingly painful experience. And it was not short. It was not short. And that's what, you know, I think sometimes we go through these hard things and we say, okay, and then, you know, we, uh, there was repentance and there was like this counseling journey and then reconciliation and then everything got back to normal. And, and we love that story. We love to tie up neat, nice bows in life. But for most of us, hard seasons don't end quite so romantic. So I know you've got listeners out there who have maybe have walked a similar journey of discovering that their spouse has cheated on them, or maybe they're in a stage right now that, that they're just a little bit suspicious for you. Were there any signs that this kind of betrayal was taking on? Or was it one of those things that you look back and you see? Because I know for many of us, we go through a hard time, we're betrayed, we're tricked, something happens. And at the time we don't see it. And afterwards, like, oh, what was that like for you? Such a good question. Such an important question. Because You know, I think as a Christian wife, I very much wanted to believe the best, speak the best. And um, I probably saw things that weren't lining up, but because I wanted to be an encouraging wife and I wanted to speak life into my marriage and do those things that were all good things, but I did override things that I saw that were like, uh, that feels weird or that doesn't seem right. But I honestly never, ever thought that this is the place that we would be. And I think part of it is because we did all of the good Christian checklist things that are supposed to protect your marriage. We did all of those things. And so sometimes I think we want to add up an equation that two plus two always equals four, but in relationships, you know, you can do two and you can add another two, but it's not always going to give you the outcome that you expect. So yes, I think I saw things that didn't line up with what I thought should be, but I overrode those things, hoping that it was attributed to something a lot less severe than having an affair. 
And I think for many listeners, it's, it may not be a spouse who's having an affair, but it may be a friend who maybe had tendencies and then betrayed, or a friend who, you know, ha- had had has had a series of maybe unhealthy relationships. And maybe, I know for me, like I had one where I thought I was the exception, but I wasn't. And at times I know myself, I felt duped or I felt a little bit of shame for not recognizing that did did you feel were there moments when you felt duped or shame and and how did you how did you learn to show grace and forgive yourself in that such a good way to phrase that because i don't know that i would have known to say exactly those words but yes i i think what's really hard is the source of an unexplainable sense of shame came in my life when i was wrestling through am i going to be held accountable to choices that were not my own. And that was really hard because for us, there were some addictions that had gotten wrapped up in my husband's life that, that then spun off into the unfaithful, um, unfaithfulness and the decision to have the affair. And so I had never grown up in a home with addiction. So I didn't know some of the signs. I honestly felt like in different seasons before I realized what was going on, I felt like I was the crazy one. Like I remember I would, I I made some counseling appointments and I would show up to my counselor's office and I would say, do you think that I'm crazy? Like, is, is there like, and how this really played out to me is when you, when you have a strong sense of discernment and which I do, um, the problem is discernment doesn't give you details. So I would discern something's wrong. And then I would ask, is something wrong? And when you're told, no, everything's fine, then it can start to make you feel like, oh, it's me. Like I'm the one, I'm just being suspicious when I shouldn't be suspicious, or I'm being anxious when I shouldn't be anxious, or I'm being, um, you know, negative when I really should be positive. And so you can see how it can start to mess with you. And I think that's what was happening. So I started focusing on myself, trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Why am I discerning things that aren't there? And then when I found out that my discernment was actually trying to clue me into something that was there, that made me almost more angry even than the affair. It was the lies that made me feel like I was crazy. Mm. Mm. It's almost like we can engage in the self gaslighting. Like we we're like, uh, you know, that, that question of what is reality. I know when I meet w- with my psychologist, I, I'm often asking the question, you know, like, Hey, I- am I crazy? I mean, that, that's like my go-to question is, am I crazy? Is this, is this rational? And, and I think that importance of having an outside voice to make the journey. And one of the things that I love about what you're doing is you're saying, Hey, you know, I couldn't walk through this on my own. And I needed help. I needed professional help. I needed a friendship circle. I needed others around me in order to to find health, in order to heal, in order to learn to forgive. What would you say to the person out there who's saying, you know what, I, I'm I'm in the midst of my own storm. It may look different, but but I can't do this on on my own. How can they go find that help? Yeah. So I would say that when we are going through pain, any kind of pain. Pain is like the indicator light that comes on to the dashboard of our life and says, there is something that needs to be tended to. If it's physical pain, then we need to go to a doctor. If it's emotional pain, then we need to go to a counselor because just because we're in pain doesn't mean that we will rightly know how to attribute the correct problem 
to that pain. And if we're in pain and we don't know the problem that's causing the pain, then we could possibly just try to cover up the pain, which the pain is not the enemy. The pain is trying to point us to a problem that very much needs to be tended to. And so we know this instinctively when it comes to our physical health. I think we get a little off course when it comes to our emotional health. And a lot of times we just want the emotional pain to go away. So we develop these coping mechanisms and we override the emotional pain by distracting ourselves. Maybe it's, you know, too much Netflix. Maybe it's uh, too much wine. Maybe it's, you know, um, reading romance novels or, you know, getting on Facebook, whatever. So it's like we're in pain and then we think, okay, I don't know exactly who to see because this pain isn't physical, it's emotional. So let me just entertain myself past it or let me numb it out or let me go to a doctor and ask for some medicine. And none of those things are bad. It's like reading a book is not bad. Watching an occasional Netflix thing, it's not bad. You know, going to get medication, that's not bad. But if we're doing it to the point where we numb past the indication that the pain is trying to point us to that there is a problem. That's where I see that we can get in trouble. What were some of the crucial things that you have done in order to lay hold of emotional and and what would also be physical healing through this? Well, I think one of the most crucial things that I did was when I went in, in the middle of just the worst part of the season that I was walking through in my marriage, I went and sat in front of my counselor and, um, and he could tell like I'd hit a real low point because our journey was pretty long and, um, it was about 18 months into it. I thought we were about to finish the, the cross the finishing line of marriage counseling. I thought we were about to renew our vows. I thought that we were really like, we'd made so much progress. And then all of a sudden I discovered that there were more lies and that, you know, what I thought was going to be this ending in reconciliation, all of a sudden, you know, my husband went back to the other woman and I was crushed all over again. I mean, I just couldn't even see straight. And so I went to my counselor and, you know, I was hurting so much. I was so disillusioned all over again, probably worse the second time. And so I remember he leaned across the the table that was between us. And he said, Lisa, do you want to heal? And I said, yes, I I very much want to heal. And he said, then today's a good day to start working on forgiveness. And I remember thinking to myself, are you high? Are you crazy? There's no way I could start working on forgiveness because I don't know how the story is going to turn out. I don't even think that he's sorry. I don't even know that he recognizes what he did as wrong when I very much think it's wrong. And if I forgive too soon, that's just going to give him permission to hurt me again. It'll make me look like a fool. Um, It'll leave me vulnerable. And so no, absolutely. I'm definitely not at a place to forgive because I'm not even sure that I'm done hurting yet. And that was the point where my counselor started to educate me that forgiveness is not so much an unfair gift we give to this other person. What forgiveness really is, is us making the decision that we have suffered long enough because of what this other person has done to us. And the only way to sever the source of suffering 
is through the power of forgiveness. It's when we decide to detach our ability to heal from that other person's choices. For so long, I felt like not only did my husband hurt me, but then he was hijacking my healing because he wasn't making certain choices that would point me in the direction of healing. Like he wasn't saying he was sorry. He wasn't admitting how deeply he'd hurt me. He wasn't admitting that what he did was wrong. And so I felt like not only did he hurt me, he also hijacked my ability to heal. But what my counselor said is, no, Lisa, your ability to heal cannot rise and fall on choices you have no say-so over. So you sever the source of suffering through saying, I am taking back my ability to heal and I will do it through the power of forgiving you. It's not, it's not me saying that I'm forgiving you and saying that what you did was no big deal. That's not it at all. It's saying, I'm making the choice to forgive so that God can sweep my heart clean so that I can walk forward in my healing, no matter what choices you do or don't make. What's really unique about your story and beautiful and I think helpful to all of us is this idea that in the midst of forgiving, you are still being wronged. I mean, this isn't, I think a lot of times when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about forgiving something in the past but you are having to do this, it sounds like, in the sense of an ongoing being wronged, which is like triple hard. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. But I think that's where most of us live. You know, I think most of us feel like, I hope I can heal from this one day when all the stars align and all the people cooperate. And I know how this turns out. The problem is, that the longer that we delay our healing, the more we suffer from the effects of the bitterness that can creep in and the resentment that can creep in. And what I found is bitterness doesn't often visit the people with hard hearts. Bitterness visits people with very tender hearts. It's those of us that have thrown our arms open wide and we love deep Therefore, we have the propensity to hurt really deep. And at first, bitterness kind of feels like this way to self-protect. Like if I feel a certain amount of resentment and bitterness, then I'll create enough emotional distance in the relationship where you won't be able to hurt me again. But what we don't realize is bitterness doesn't just want to be a feeling in our heart. Bitterness wants to become our only feeling. And not too far down the path, bitterness starts to leak out from us and it starts to turn us into someone we don't want to be. And when you go through something that's really hard, like the implosion of a marriage or, you know, a betrayal of a friend or, you know, like you said, somebody just catching you off guard because they tricked you or duped you, you know, the, the emotional fallout from that can be absolutely devastating. And what I think most people do is they sit in their suffering so long that bitterness and resentment seem to be the only logical choice so that they don't continue to get hurt. And what my counselor helped me see is, Lisa, the sooner you attend to your need to heal, the less time you will let hurt sit in your heart. Because when hurt sits in the human heart unattended too long, it starts to turn into all kinds of versions of hate. 
and it starts to turn us into somebody we don't want to be. And honestly, part of the reason that we're so devastated when people hurt us is because of what it has the propensity to do to us. Like it brings out this part of us that we don't want to stay front and center for so long. We, we don't want to be bitter. We don't want to be angry. And yet that tends to happen to us when we're hurting for a long time. What do you say to the listener who right now is buying into the lie? What they did is unforgivable. Mm. Well, usually what I've found is when we're saying that, it means that that person did something unchangeable to us. In other words, like they've done something that set off a chain of events that can't ever be redone or made right. And that unchangeable nature can feel very unforgivable. But when when I start to say that in my own life, I start to say to myself, Lisa, remember, forgiveness doesn't start with you. I don't conjure up forgiveness. Forgiveness is this beautiful, this beautiful gift that God gives to us because we desperately need forgiveness ourselves. And what forgiveness is, is God's forgiveness flowing to us. And then we just must cooperate with it and let it flow through us to other people. So forgiveness is not based on my determination. Forgiveness is based on my cooperation with what God has already done. And where I fall into this trap, and I'm just going to be completely honest, I'm a rule follower, so I like to do the right thing. But sometimes that makes me, when I get hurt by another person, That makes me say, how in the world could this other person have done this? And I start to view myself as the saint and them the sinner. And when I view myself as the saint and them the sinner, I don't think that I need very much of God's forgiveness. So when I only have a tiny bit of God's forgiveness flowing to me, it's almost impossible to let a whole bunch of forgiveness flow through me. So I have to recognize I'm not the saint and them the sinner. We're all hurting humans trying to find our way. And I desperately need God's forgiveness. It's not that I've done something wrong in this situation, maybe, but there are plenty of things that I need to receive God's forgiveness for. And that that understanding of my own propensity to take the hurt that's been placed on me and perpetuate it out in different ways on other people, that is my need for forgiveness. So I let God's forgiveness flow to me, and then I let it flow through me to other people. It's just that I'm a conduit. I'm a pass through. But that that motion of God's forgiveness flowing to me and through me is what keeps my heart swept clean of the bitterness and the anger and all the other things that we're warned. Don't let all of this stuff sit in your heart because like I said, hurt that sits unattended in the human heart too long can turn into versions of hate. So helpful. You know, for the listener out there who is saying, okay, Okay, maybe I, I I will let go of the lie that I can't get through this, that things are not going to get better. Uh, how do they go about starting to create a, a life that's beautiful again? How have you been able to do that? Just kind of giving our listeners some encouragement that that even in the darkness, um, the light does shine again, even if it's not on the timetable that we might think. So what I would say is, 
What I would say is it starts the moment that we decide that we deserve to stop suffering because of what other people have done to us. And the minute that we can just agree that we deserve to stop suffering because of what other people have done to us, that's the minute that we start to recognize that forgiveness, again, it's not an unfair gift we give to other people. It is a beautiful process that we walk through. Forgiveness is both a decision and a process. We make the one-time decision to forgive for the facts of what happened to us. So I literally take out three by five cards and write those facts down. And then I acknowledge the pain that has been caused. And I walk card by card by card. And I say, I forgive this person for this. And whatever my feelings will not yet allow for, the blood of Jesus will surely cover it. And so that's my decision to forgive for the facts of what happened to me. But forgiveness is not just a decision. It's also a process, a process of it may take the rest of my life to forgive this person for the impact, the emotional debt that was created in my life. I have to also forgive them for the impact that's happened to me. And part of what makes people feel like their life is no longer beautiful is they get triggered in their pain even after they've forgiven. And when they get triggered in their pain, it feels like the hurt has hijacked their emotions all over again. But what I'm recognizing is no, being triggered in pain is just an indication that it's time for me to now forgive for another part of the impact that this person's choices had on me. So I stop and I say, whatever, you know, I say, okay, here's my pain, my anxiety or my fear because of what this person did to me. I've already forgiven them for the fact of what happened but now I'm forgiving them for the impact. And so I'll say, I forgive this person for the impact, the emotional cost that this was to me. And whatever my feelings will not yet allow for, the blood of Jesus will surely cover it. So it allows this process of healing to stretch out in our life. So when we get triggered in pain, it doesn't mean we're a forgiveness failure. It means that we are on the journey of healing And we're just made aware of another portion of forgiveness we need to walk through. But when we understand that, triggers no longer have to hijack us. And we are free to know what to do when the triggers come. And when the triggers aren't there, we're free to look around, look up, tell ourselves the sky is not falling. God is still on the throne. God is still good at being God. My life is still worth living and I do deserve to stop suffering because of what this other person has done to me. So I'm going to sweep my heart clean of all the darkness that this suffering has caused for so long so that I am free to walk into my future and I'm free to see the good that is there and the possibilities that are still there. There is still a beautiful life to be discovered. Amen. Lisa, thank you so much for your insight, your wisdom, and your love. Um, Thank you for being on the Joycast. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for your work with joy that you do. All of us need more of this. So thank you. Thank you.